Um, good evening. Uh, I'm Roger Kimball. I think I know most of you, so I won't uh, belabor that part of it. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this first colloquy of the Friends of the New Criterion for 2008. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, before introducing our speaker, I'd like to take a moment to thank our hosts, Michael and Marilyn Fedak, for making this evening a, a reality. As many of you know, Michael and Marilyn make many important things in the city possible, even things having no obvious connection to the new criterion. Uh, and we're all very grateful that, for that. Uh, many organizations have reasons to, uh, to be grateful for their enlightened interventions, and all of us at the new criterion are more grateful to them than I can express. <clears throat> um, I always say that I'm pleased to introduce whoever it is who comes to speak to the Friends of the New Criterion, and I always tell the truth. I am pleased, but tonight is special. I'm more than pleased. I'm delighted, honored, and proud that Joseph Epstein has traveled from Chicago to be with us tonight. The only cloud on the horizon, it's a small cloud, but dense, is that in introducing Joe, I have to acknowledge the progress of what Andrew Marvell referred to as time's winged chariot. I can remember, lo, these many years ago, sitting in my tiny apartment on West 15th Street, reading an essay by Joe in his magazine, The American Scholar, dilating eloquently on the fact that he had just turned 50. Imagine that. Poor duffer, I thought to myself. <laughs> Though it's pretty impressive how well he manages to get around at such an advanced age. Ah, youth. In fact, uh, I felt I'd known Joe well even before I met him. Uh, Hilton Kramer, who knew Joe even before Joe turned 50 last month, spoke often of their friendship and their many literary and other sorts of collaborations. According to Hilton, Joe, in addition to being a scintillating critic and brilliant editor, was just about the most entertaining person he had ever known. It turns out that Hilton was right about this as about so much else. I think anyone who's both literate and English-speaking will know of Joe's literary endeavors, his decades-long editorship of the late lamented American scholar, uh, which since Joe's departure has become a sort of travesty of its former self, his dozens of short stories, his many familiar essays, a genre that he picked up and ran with when folks like Michel de Montaigne and John J. Chapman retired from the fray, and of course his scores of brilliant critical essays, many of which have appeared in The New Criterion. Joe has also written a short shelf of books, including a celebrated book on snobbery, which I hasten to point out is not about The New Criterion. Uh, and I cannot end this catalog of ships without mentioning his exquisite taste in neckwear, uh, on exhibition tonight, uh, and also the, fa the fact that he is an expert juggler. Uh, we had hoped, in fact, to have a brief demonstration of his prowess in this area, but uh, I was told that juggling, like indulging in tobacco and certain foodstuffs, has been added to Mayor Bloomberg's list of forbidden activities, even in private clubs, so we had to give it a miss. Um, well, those of you with long memories will recall that the lead essay in volume one, number one of the new criterion, was a delightfully depressing essay on the literary life today by one Joseph Epstein. It took most people 25 years to recover from that critical detonation, so it wasn't until last September, a quarter of a century on, that Joe agreed to animadvert again about the state of literary life today. 
The essay is a tour de force, and I'm happy to say that we have a few extra copies that are scattered about uh, in the antechamber there that you can take with you if you don't have a copy. I'm only sorry that Joe announced that he would unlikely be at leisure to contribute another inspection of what remains of the literary life after another 25 years have passed. I hope that we'll be able to prevail upon him to reconsider when the time comes. But that's for another day. For tonight, it is my great pleasure to welcome Joseph Epstein to New York and to this meeting of the Friends of the New Criterion. It's, it's always a problem when the introduction's better than the talk. Uh, thank you, Roger, for that. Uh, as for the talk itself, uh, I think you should know straight off that it's been rated PG-13. There's going to be a few rough words in, in it, uh, but no violence and no nudity whatsoever. Uh, I also, uh, in giving the talk, I, whenever I give a talk, I, I, I somehow I'm not able to just let it rip and talk for 40 minutes without some preparation. And I'm reminded that a friend of mine, who was a, a head of a small university, was once, uh, with a number of other small university presidents, one not so small university, speaking to possible sources of funding, uh, were giving talks. And one of the people who was uh, making the presentation was Vartan Gregorian, whom you all know, was, was once head of the library and was uh, head of Brown at the time, and now is the Carnegie Institute. And my friend was sitting on the dais with the other university presidents, and he noticed Vartan Gregorian took out a sheaf of index cards. And uh, he started talking from the index cards. And my friend noticed there was nothing written on the index cards. <laughs> uh, so after it was over, he said, Vartan, what was that about? There's nothing written on the index cards. He said, oh, I didn't want them to think I hadn't prepared. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So, uh, we are all friends of the New Criterion. Uh, it occurred to me I'm a friend of the New Criterion, uh, though the New Criterion has been an even better friend to me. Uh, it's allowed me to write on such subjects at, at leisurely length of pressing concern as Paul Valéry, Lord Berners, Max Beerbohm, Morris Baring, C.P. Cavafy, Proust, Henry James, and others others, and I'll always be grateful for this allowing me a forum of this kind. Uh, I can recall, as Roger mentioned, uh, the founding of the magazine. Hilton and I worked together many years ago at the New Leader magazine, and Hilton uh, was working at the New York Times, and I was of two minds. I, I so, uh, was so split about Hilton's leaving the New York Times. When he was there, it was like having a friend at the Kremlin. You know, he, he had wonderful gossip of what was going on and all of these things. Hilton was the first art critic, the major art critic at the Times. And to give you an idea of Hilton's standing, when Solzhenitsyn uh, went into exile from Russia, was really essentially kicked out of the country and moved to Vermont, the New York Times desperately wanted an interview with Solzhenitsyn. And he said uh, through his uh, you know, ambassadors, he said, I will only agree to do it with Hilton Kramer. He's the only man I trust on the New York Times to interview me and do it in a serious uh, and impressive way. 
And I, I, I thought, Solzhenitsyn, you're, you're no dope. You absolutely picked the right man. And that was Hilton's stature and standing. Uh, and he left uh, the New York Times and sort of the, the widespread fame of everyone reads, however, whatever the quality of the paper, we know everyone reads it, to found this magazine. Uh, I think the, uh, the title of the magazine, of course, comes from T.S. Eliot's Criterion. Uh, and the aims of the new Criterion at its founding were clear. It was to be highbrow, unmistakably, immitigably, irremediably, as Henry James Hilton's great hero probably would have put it. Hilton and his friend Sam Lippman, who signed on as the publisher, both shared this highbrowism. And here's where the PG-13 first gets into play. I once asked Sam Lippman, who was a music pro uh, prodigy as a young man, Sam had the same patroness, the daughter of the, of the woman who was the patroness for Yehudi Menuhin in San Francisco. I once asked Sam, Sam, you don't often mention television in the movies. How is that? Sam said, I consider television in the movies dog shit. <laughs> Not even the dignity of a horse or a cow, I thought. Uh, that's the word he used. Uh, I, Sam was, when he was dying of cancer and was thinking of uh, radical cures for cancer, I mentioned to Sam, who was 59 years old, you know, Steve McQueen had gone to Mexico for a Laetrile cure. Sam said to me, who is Steve McQueen? <laughs> 59 years in America, and I said, God, you're living well, uh, living high. Uh, Hilton is not a man, for those of you who know him, who you ask whom he likes in the World Series. Uh, somebody once said to me, with seven or eight sets of quotation marks, what's Hilton's favorite rock group? Uh, I must have had a good night's sleep because I said Herman and the Hermits. He especially likes Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Sing it around him at any time. Uh, in any case, these two extraordinary men started this, this magazine and kept it going with, uh, their, with great energy. And Sam, I, I wish more of you knew Sam. He was really an extraordinary person. I was trying to formulate Sam's strange personality. Uh, Sam suffered slightly from paranoia. He was insomniac. And he was, I think it's fair to say, megalomaniac. And I used to say, I know, now I understand what goes on with Sam. He stays up all night worrying about people taking away from him power he doesn't possess. Uh, but that was, that was Sam. Uh, Sam, uh, I want Sam, Sam was never less than brilliant in anything he said. He was wrong 30 or 40% of the time, but always brilliant. And sometimes he would tell me ideas for the magazine. And I said, well, do you talk to him about Hilton? He says, I do. I said, what does he say? Does he argue with them down? He says he doesn't argue with me. He just goes like this. <laughs> and these two were a kind of, they were also extraordinary motive finders. It was like being with two little Henry Jameses. Uh, if any cultural event happened, they would find the motive in some way and very convincingly. In any case, these two men, then in their 50s, started this, this magazine, The New Criterion. The magazine was felt to be, I think, a gatekeeper. It was uh, to let in all that was you know, authentic in art 
and keeping out by giving a sound drubbing all that was second rate or less. It set out to defend the works and spirit of modernism, those highbrow works with classical roots, then under attack by pop and op and other pro probably mostly spurious arts, most of which today have found general acceptance. And it set itself no less a task than to save a culture that was felt to be in peril. Around this time, a man named Richard Poirier, who was an editor of the Partisan Review, published an article in the Partisan Review about the Beatles, in which he said the Beatles, it will be understood, are the equivalent of James Joyce's Ulysses and the four quartets of T.S. Eliot. Uh, that's one of the things that Hilton and Sam were against, that kind of thing, that softening up. Uh, they were also against the uh, falsely or dreary, dreary serious. I remember saying to Sam, that he, who had just returned from a Philip Glass opera, what's it like, Sam? Was it good? He says, well, I'll tell you what it's like. Here's its message. Die, die, die. But first, first, before you die, give me $125 for a ticket. Uh, that's what, that's what they were like. They were, they were, they were a wild duo, I think. Uh, in any case, they had this highbrow enterprise. I don't know how many people have thought to still bother about defining the highbrow. Uh, what I think of the highbrow as is high, the highbrow is that art which doesn't mind being difficult. It is often concerned with the problems of art itself. You remember James Joyce said of Ulysses, I took seven years to write this book. I don't bother me if it takes you seven to understand it. Uh, there was that. Then people talked about the middle brow. Middle brow is art that makes a pretense to seriousness, but usually has a kind of message uh, of preaching behind it, a kind of uh, secret message. I suppose the ultimate highbrow work uh, is Arthur Miller's The Death of a Salesman. Uh, that's the, uh, um, excuse me, middle brow work. It's always sort of telling you capitalism's doing this, something else is going on all the time. I don't know how many of you I know the joke about uh, the two salesmen that are dragged by their wives to see the death of the salesman. And as they're going up the aisle after the play, one says to the other, well, what'd you think of that? He says, oh, this guy Miller. He says, he nailed it. He just absolutely nailed it. The other guy said, what do you mean? He said, he's got it just right. That New England territory was never any good. <laughs> so. Anyhow, there's also something called lowbrow art, as we know, which simply tries to get the largest possible audience. There's, a, there's an interesting little insight into this. Uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov was once said, who, who is his ideal reader? And he said, you know, some people say the readers, the ideal reader is that reader who can identify most with the characters in my novels and so forth. He said, that's not for me. The ideal reader for me is the reader who identifies with the artist who says, what's he doing? How's he gonna get out of this? What's gonna happen? That's the person to worry about, not the characters. The, uh, and I think he felt that way. Uh, well, in any case, people don't talk so much nowadays about highbrow, middlebrow, lowbrow. It was a great occupation, preoccupation of writers in the 50s and 60s and 70s when the magazine was started. And I wonder today, if Hilton and Sam were starting the new criterion, would they, could they, I wonder, do so with the same confident presuppositions? I'm not sure. Well, 
invited by Roger and the FedEx to speak to the Friends of the New Criterion, I thought I would take the opportunity to tell Roger and James Pinero and David Yezzi how they really ought to run their magazine. I'll now proceed to do so. Uh, I'm able to do so, let me tell you, for two reasons. First is, I am an expert. And an expert, as we all know, is a man from out of town. Uh, and I'm leaving promptly in the morning, so I'm really doubly an expert. Uh, even more impressive, though, though I suspect not everybody here tonight is aware of this, I happen to have been one of the great genius editors of the age. As I say, not everybody may know this. In fact, I wasn't myself aware of it until I was fired from the American Scholar uh, when it was made plain to me that I am such a person. Uh, there were editorials about my firing in the Wall Street Journals uh, saying that uh, the West was finished. It seems to have survived. Uh, a country has a lot of room to it, Adam Smith said, and I say civilization even more. Uh, I was fired for a kind of insufficiency of political correctness. I, I just didn't think uh, academic feminism and Afro-American studies in its academic uh, spheres was of much interest. But let me tell you, uh, how I came to be a great editor. Uh, I really didn't realize I was until a friend of mine, a lawyer in Washington named Jacob Stein, told me that I was the beneficiary of what Jake calls the Brooks Robinson effect. I don't know how many of you in the room know who Brooks Robinson is. He was the best fielding third baseman, they say, in the history of the American League, maybe all of baseball. And Jake Stein, who was, Jake Stein was, for a little bit of name dropping here, Jake Stein was Monica Lewinsky's second battery of lawyers. He had headed them up. And Jake was from Washington, and he has what I think of as a Washington accent. And, uh, I, someone who was born in Washington, and he said, Joe, you're going to benefit from the Brooks Robinson effect. I said, what's that, Jake? He said, well, you know, Brooks was a great, great, great fielder. But after old Brooks retired, Orioles got a third baseman named Doug DeCensus, a good, big, solid ball player, DeCensus, really a solid ball player. But you know, there'd be a pop-up hit. DeCensus would go 150 feet to his right into the dugout, fall down the steps, fall on his back, just barely miss it, and one fan would say to another, you know, Brooks would have got it. <laughs> and so since I've left the American Scholar, people say, you would never have permitted this. Not under you, not, this would not have happened. So if you want greatness, arrange to be fired first. I, this, this seems to be the recipe, as far as I can tell. Uh, the American Scholar was a quarterly, I'm pleased to say, and I found it an admirable time to publish a magazine at three-month intervals. Uh, it cut an editor free from the news, from politics, from the horror of the now and the terror of not keeping up with things. While I was there for 23 years, the name of a current president was never mentioned. Uh, the Cold War ended without any notice of it in the magazine. Were I editing the magazine today, would I have to mention Al-Qaeda, the incursions of radical Islam and the rest? I don't know, I don't know, uh, because this seems so pressing at the moment. When I was teaching uh, at, many years ago at Northwestern, 
I came upon a little book on punctuation by an English writer named V.J. Carey. And in the introduction to the book, Carey said uh, he apologized for writing a book of punctuation on punctuation while the blitz was going on in London. I know, how could he be doing such a trivial, uh, secondary, tertiary thing? And I remember reading it and I thought, don't apologize. It's because that's why wars are fought, so these kinds of activities can go on and continue. Uh, don't apologize. Uh, which reminds me that one of the, uh, Cyril Connolly, one of the editors of the great intellectual magazines, Horizon, began his magazine in 1939 with England just going to war. Uh, the magazine's run was from 39 to 50. Starting an intellectual magazine had long been Connolly's fantasy. Favorite daydream, he wrote in 1933, dated a monthly magazine entirely subsidized by itself. No advertisements, harmless title, deleterious contents. Connolly also wrote, editing a magazine is a form of the good life. It is creating when the world is destroying, helping where it is hindering, uh, being given every month the opportunity to produce a perfect number and every month failing. And just as despair sets in, being presented with one more chance, plop, the afternoon post falls on the carpet, the letterbox becomes a periscope on the outside world, encouragement arrives and fat subscriptions and notices in other magazines, letters from California and Brazil, contributions from all over the world, one of which may have been long awaited and another be totally unexpected and yet just as good. So there it is. It's a kind of intellectual's dream, I think, editing a magazine. Uh, all this brings to mind W.H. Auden's notion, we're intellectual, intellectual marines landing in little magazines. In any case, Roger and I share the good fortune of having had this particular intellectual's dream realized in our lifetimes of having a magazine. Uh, I had a friend, a remarkable man named Edward Shills, who taught at the University of Chicago and in Cambridge in England. He was very smart and I think very wise. And Edward used to say that there were four chief institutions through which one can acquire an education in America or anywhere else. And the four were as follows. Uh, the classroom. Bookstores, he thought, new used bookstores, but particularly used bookstores. The conversations of intelligent friends and intellectual magazines. Now, when I think of those four, for me, the latter prevailed. I don't think there's any institution that I can point to uh, that contributed so much to my, to my, such knowledge as I have as, as the intellectual magazines. I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, completely undistinguished, let me assure you. And one day I walked into Rainier, uh, Harper Library in the periodical room and I discovered something called commentary. And I discovered something called partisan review. And I discovered Encounter Magazine, which had just started up. And the whole world sort of lit up for me. I've been reading, at the University of Chicago, you only read sort of heightened things, uh, Gibbon and Hazlitt. And here were continuers, continuators of this tradition. And I thought, my god, this is, this is wonderful and live and vital and something worth doing. 
Uh, I must say, in this room, currently, there's a young man uh, aging every day who walked into one of my classes at Northwestern. There are actually two of them, but one in particular I'm thinking of, who walked into one of my classes because he had been reading me at the new criterion. Uh, so the beat goes on, as the disc jockeys say. Uh, what numbers, we don't know, but the beat does go on. Uh, there are all sorts of criteria for how you determine a great editor, a good editor. I would say uh, one of the chief ones is a man or woman who recognizes the leading issues of their times and knows how to respond to them. Uh, I'd like now to suggest to Roger and James Pinero and David Yezzi what I think some of these issues in the realm of culture are. To begin with, I think we must all recognize that we no longer have a unified national culture in the United States. By this I mean that those of us who are in their 60s and 70s and older cannot expect to share the same response to culture with people much younger. We now don't all sing the same songs, go to the same movies, find the same inspiration from a general majority culture. There is no majority culture. The young today, I find, cannot bear to watch black and white movies or slower moving comedy. I have a very smart granddaughter. I can't persuade her that W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy are wonderful. Uh, she's in a different rhythm. She's uh, somewhere else. It's as if their very, very rhythms are different than people older than they. Many people in this room will recall the goofy Ed Sullivan show, where you would get Robert Merrill or Jan Pierce, someone from the Met, uh, an animal act, Jackie Mason, uh, Chinese acrobats, and three generations could sit down and watch this together. You know, your grandfather, your, your parents, and, and you as a young person. There's nothing like this in the culture today. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's something I think anyone editing a magazine has to think very hard about. Consider the audience for classical music now. Uh, how old, if not elderly, it has become. Uh, if you wish to feel young, uh, if you're feeling old, uh, I recommend going to a chamber music concert. You will throw away your crutches. The Viagra will go out the window. Uh, you will feel so, everyone seems so elderly and so sad at, at these things. And what's going to happen, I don't know. But there are questions that I think editors of cultural magazines have to take care of. Uh, one can, I suppose, blame these things on multiculturalism, on dumbing down, on ignorant leftism. But other forces, larger forces, have also been at work here. Capitalism, uh, which cleverly responded to niche markets. Uh, also creating a kind of youth market, which sort of separated youth from the rest of the culture. And youth, as we now know, goes on till 40. Uh, it caters to, we have cable television, which caters to every kind of ethnic and other interest. The culture is divided up in some way. Mark Stein, in the December issue of the New Criterion, makes the point that by now, we have come to lose even the memory of what we've lost in this connection. And I think there's, there's much to it. High culture still needs a strong defense. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I wonder if this defense doesn't now need to become somehow less fixed, less rigid. Hilton Kramer outlawed the subject of movies from the new criterion. And I suspect he was correct to do so. 
I have made a friend through email, a man named Frederick Raphael, who is himself a screenwriter. In Frederick Raphael's recent novel, he has a remark that I, I noted down. He says, in effect, that the movies are, people who make movies are third-rate people trying to pass themselves off as second-rate. And the second, if you're truly second-rate, you will then become an auteur. Uh, there's a lot to that, I'm afraid. And this comes from somebody who's always looking for a movie. I'm somebody who's always bringing DVDs home. And sometimes magical things happen, but for the most part, not. But I wonder, uh, I'm not saying that I think the new criterion ought to start doing movies. I think they're probably right not to. But I wonder if the magazine oughtn't to be more vigilantly on the outlook uh, for genuine art that doesn't advertise itself as such. Was it by Laura, a piece in the new criterion by Laura Jacobs, I think it was, the, the magazine's dance critic, uh, who said of Elvin, at the Elvin Ailey Dance Company's signature piece, Revelations, that it was entertainment disguising itself as art. Entertainment disguising itself as art. I just finished writing a little book on Fred Astaire where just the reverse happens, I think. You have uh, uh, art disguising itself as entertainment. And I wonder if the magazine shouldn't be on the outlook for that kind of joyous thing. Uh, I wonder if jazz at its highest level isn't a subject for the magazine. Certain jazz musicians, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Big Spiderback, qualify as genuine American artists and not folk artists merely. In fact, that generation of jazz musicians is one of the greatest black jazz musicians, especially who lived through the toughest years of segregation, or perhaps maybe the most, the truly most impressive group of 20th century artists we have. One can't, of course, live off the great art of the past, though some of us might be, I think, are finding it more and more difficult. I don't know if anyone has the experience that I have. My wife is a, a, a great concert goer, and sometimes she will say to me, oh, look, the Chicago Symphony is doing two Mozarts and a Bach. Or, uh, and I'll say to you, you know, I've heard these things 72 times now. I don't think I can quite groove to that anymore. I think it's, uh, at some point, uh, something else has to happen. A strict diet of high culture, especially in its modern phase, is not everyone's dish of tea. Personally, Noel Coward wrote to the English playwright Arnold Wesker, personally, I should rather play bingo every night for a year than pay a return visit to waiting for Godot. <laughs> Something to that, I think. Now, another point that I, I think has come up in, in, the, in terms of cultural change uh, is connected with the new criterion, which has devoted a great deal of energy over the years to describing the inanities and, in fact, insanities of higher education over the past 25 years. When a younger man, Roger Kimball, would be sent off to MLA conferences and return with amusing pieces that collectively might have borne the title, See the Baboons at Play. <laughs> but I wonder if there is any longer a need to chronicle the low jinks of academic life, at least in the humanities and social sciences. I wonder if the time hasn't come to acknowledge that the liberal arts, as many of us know them when in selves in college, are for the present 
finished, done, kaput. I have a granddaughter who I mentioned earlier who is, has, uh, I'm pleased to say, has a gift for visual art. Somebody very clever said, gifts are from God, presents are from men and women. Uh, she has this, she, from a very early age, she could do visual art of all kinds. And she's going to art school, and she's going to miss out on a liberal arts education. Uh, she's not going to be able to understand that Shakespeare was gay and a running dog of capitalism. Uh, and things like that. And I must say, I don't feel the regret. And this comes from someone for whom liberal arts was a kind of secondary religion. Uh, I think it's time to recognize that where, where one's children and grandchildren go to college is less and less a matter of education than of certification and of snobbery. Paul Goodman, I don't know how many people in the room remember Paul Goodman, this old strange radical. I think Paul Goodman was a a quadrisexual, he, had a, he, had a, he was as radical as it was possible to be in his day. But Paul Goodman said of college education then, and I mocked him and didn't believe it, I now coming to believe it, he said, going through four years of college means one thing, I will do anything to play in the game. I will write papers on the Reformation. I will learn languages I will not use. Uh, and that's what it's now, coming more and more to be. But if I'm correct about this, and it's a controversial point, uh, if I'm right about the death of the liberal arts as presently constituted in our universities, lots of interesting new subjects open up for a general magazine. What's an intellectual life like outside the universities? I remember B. Crystal once saying that American universities never contributed all that much, really, to the national intellectual life. Is this true? I don't know. When I think of the New York intellectuals who have had so much fame in the last 20 or so years, only two initially taught full-time or were trained as academics, Lionel Trilling and William Barrett. The others did other things. Uh, another point that occurs to me, I'd like to see the New Criterion press harder than it has, uh, is poetry. The New Criterion has rendered a service to poetry, I think, by publishing the reviews of William Logan, who uh, doesn't mind saying in his reviews of heavily award-laden and highly ranked poets that the emperor not only has no clothes, but the poor, poor fellow doesn't seem to have a scrotum. <laughs> I have the feeling that something strange in the culture has changed in connection with poetry. I suspect that lyric poetry, like the epic or verse drama, maybe on its way out for now. W.H. Auden, who was born in 1907, said that to become a poet of the first rank, great talent is not enough. One must get born at the right time and in the right place. He thought that the time was between 1870 and 1890, in the 1890s. And he might be correct if you think of major poets after that generation of T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, Robert Frost, etc with the exception perhaps of Auden himself and maybe Philip Larkin. Uh, this kind of tired fatigue with poetry is not just an American phenomenon. Writing in last month's issue of Poetry Magazine, the Italian critic Gianluigi Simonetti writes, over the past 20 years, the decline of poetry has been a leitmotif among leading 
Italian critics. People are tired of the poems about I. Simonetti writes. A guess, uh, a vast, my guess is too vast, quantity of poetry is currently being written. I think Gresham's law is kind of kicking in. MA, MFAs on the subject are being churned out by universities in great number. Some years ago I read there are 26,000 registered poets in the United States. Where one goes to register was not mentioned. Uh, the feeling of all these people going on to teach poetry and teach it and teach it and teach it reminds me that when the Soviet Union broke down, there were 150,000 teachers of Marxism, Leninism, and no one knew what to do with them. Uh, I too dislike it, wrote Marian Moore of Modern Poetry, but please notice she didn't say, I don't give a damn about it. It's very hard, I think, these days to find anyone who is not writing poetry or writing about it who does much care for it. The, modern, the Poetry Foundation, which was given $200 million by Ruth Lilly, is now sending out letters saying, what should we do, where should we go, should we do it in the schools? In any case, I think it's time for the new criterion not to just allow business as usual to go on, but to say, how did this happen? Why, what caused it to happen, and what does it mean? Still another subject, I think the magazine ought to consider is that of the phenomenon of graphic novels. Novels, as I understand the term, in the form of extended comic strips. How is it uh, connected, graphic novels, to the fact that so much of contemporary culture these days is served up in the form of animation, from The Simpsons to Family Guy to full-length animated movies? Does this speak somehow to the juvenilization of the culture? As the kids say, so I suspect the new criterion should ask, what's that about? To take up a much larger issue, what ought a contemporary magazine devoted to culture to make of the large amount of attention that atheism has in recent years been getting, owing chiefly to the books published by Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and others? How has this come about? Why has it come about now? What does it mean for culture and the culture? A writer named Tina Beatty, in a book called The New Atheists, viewing the rise of public atheism, notes that there remains a hunger for God among educated people who often look for this hunger to be satisfied in literature, art, and music. Can the arts do the work of religion? Can they replace religion? All these are questions that a serious intellectual magazine devoted to culture needs to deal with difficult, even embarrassing, though the subject is. A word about the purpose and ideal audience for the new criterion. Cyril Connolly somewhere makes the distinction between dynamic and eclectic magazines. Dynamic magazines usually have a clear cause. The avant-garde was such a cause, I suppose, in Connolly's day. Eclectic magazines try to publish the best work they can find without reference to any particular cause. In this uh, dichotomy, the new criterion is a dynamic magazine. Its cause has been to help save what its editors, from Hilton and Sam Lippman through Roger, have seen as the destruction of a once richer, more serious culture than the one we've been living with since well before the magazine began. 
To be sure, not everything published in the new criterion contributes equally to this cause, but a cause the magazine does have, and one of the ways it helps this cause is to reinforce its readers' own belief in the cause through the articles and arguments it publishes in its pages. Commentary Magazine, I think, is especially good at doing this, more directly in Commentary's case in the political realm. I don't know how many of you in the room read the magazine, but a few months ago there was an extraordinary essay, I thought, by Joshua, uh, Joshua Moravchek on the subject of why we're in, in Iraq at a time when everyone, it seemed in the world, felt this is the disaster of all disasters. This was before General Petraeus and the surge and things have much calmed down. And in this article, uh, Joshua Moravchek sort of set out what was really behind it. He allowed for the mistakes, but it somehow it bucked up people. And I think magazines of the kind of the new criterion and commentary do this. They lift, they lift one's spirits by reminding us about first principles and things like that. Uh, but the great art in editing the new criterion, I should think, is in striking the delicate but right balance between the polemical, the, the educational, and the merely pleasurable. A piece I took great pleasure in, I must say, in a recent issue, was James Pinero's piece on uh, Kerkel, the great uh, cataloger of Mozart. It was something I've, all my life, I've heard Kerkel 9, uh, 522, Kerkel 331, and I had never thought to ask exactly who is Kerkel, and James Pinero wrote this piece, placing me exactly, and that's the kind of educative function that I think a, uh, a great magazine performs. Um, the readers who make up the audience for the new criterion, my guess is, are very little different from its editors, at least in their general beliefs. Most uh, editors of intellectual magazines like to think that there is such a congruence between editors and readers. I don't know if many of you saw in the New York Review a very small ad placed by the Three Penny Review in, I think, the last issue. The ad read as follows. Rupert Murdoch doesn't subscribe to the Three Penny Review, nor do Mitch Album, Danielle Steele, Tom Cruise, Mel Gibson, Donald Trump, Lynn Cheney, and George W. Bush. The ad is entirely snobbish, of course, politically and culturally snobbish, and it's enough to make me think about time to cancel my subscription to the Three Penny Review. But is there a similar snobbery working in the new criterion? I don't think there is, but I do sometimes worry about it a little about a tone that sometimes creeps into the magazine by way of some of its contributors. I want to stop here a moment and tell a little story about a man named Robert Conquest. I don't know how many people know Robert Conquest. Robert Conquest is an Englishman. He was a friend of Kingsley Amos and Philip Larkins. Uh, he was, I, I met him only once. He was a smallish man, very pink, round-faced, bald and in the most mellifluous and cultivated English accent could say some of the most extraordinarily outrageous things going. What he's best known for, however, Robert Conquest, is a very great book called The Great Terror, in which he set out exactly what Stalin had done and made it impossible any longer to be a respectable Stalinist, I think, once that book was out in the world. And when the book came out in the world, 
It was treated high-handedly by many academic Sovietologists. People said it was just, uh, it was merely anecdotal and things of that kind. Uh, in any case, Robert Conquest's editors were going to do a, uh, a paperback version, a new paperback edition, and they said to Robert Conquest, Mr. Conquest, is there anything about you'd like to change for the new uh, paperback edition? He said, actually, yes, yes, I'm so pleased to ask. There's one thing I'd like changed. I said, really, Mr. Conquest, what, what might that be? He said, but I was thinking I'd like, to I'd, like, I'd like to change the title, you see, the title. He said, but you know, the book is known as The Great Terror, and it's, uh, it's a great title. You have a better? I think I do. He said, I, yes, I, I think I do. And the other said, what might it be, uh, Mr. Conquest? He said, I'd like the new title to be You Were All Wrong, You Fucking Fools. It's a good story, I think. Uh, but I'm not sure that that line, that title, is a proper uh, motto or a proper tone for a good magazine, on, on the other hand. A conservative magazine should never, I think, have the feeling of, you were all wrong, you effing fools. Uh, I think it should be jolly. It should be happy because of its possession of genuine culture. Uh, jolly because it doesn't hold out false hopes for for utopia and has an understanding of the limits and possibilities for change. Uh, it's especially in the case of the new criterion, this tone shouldn't be allowed to creep in uh, a false superiority because, in fact, the magazine is genuinely superior. Well, I'm going to end here. Uh, the one thing I want you all to go home with, the one idea, is that you heard a 30-minute or so talk from a man who did not once in that time mention the internet. <laughs> Thank you very much.